Talking Landscape Photography, Photography. with Christian Fletcher and Carwin. Want to score some free Lightroom presets? Go to lightminded.com.au. I risk my life giving you these presets. <laughs> also, make sure you do a search for us on Instagram as well. Just do a search for uh, Lightminded Podcast. Now, we've got a uh, very serious photographer with us on Lightminded today. His name is David Dare Parker. He resides in Margaret River. David, welcome to Lightminded. Um, first up, David Dare Parker, it's not a, a hyphenated name, is it? No, it's like a father to son tradition, but mm. um, it's a middle name. Oh, nothing that's posh. Right. Yeah, there's nothing posh about it at all. Oh, sounds, sounds thought, very thought, posh. Oh, hello. Hello, David. How are you? <laughs> no, no. So it's a middle name. Yeah, it's a gift from my father. Um, yeah. yeah he was also a dare parker, and my son's a dare parker, but it's a middle name, no hyphen. Yeah, right. Where did that originate? How did that I'm come not about? Sure. I mean, he died when I was quite young, so I didn't really get a chance to ask him much, but um, yeah. I found no yeah. family history, but there's very few of his family left, so it's a little bit hard to track it down. But, um, yeah. Not exactly sure, but I, I use it. It's kind of like um, I got that in a gold ring from him. Um, yeah. Oh, so I, I use it, and it's fun, whatever. It's well, a it's, a, it's a very cool name. I think, <laughs> um, I mean, I've, I've known of you for a long time, mm. and um, and I've always thought, oh, David Dare Parker, that's such a cool name. And, <laughs> and do they call you DDP? Is that, do they, a lot of people abbreviate that? It, it is a bit of a mouthful, so the DDP thing has become a bit of a nickname, yep. Especially yeah, yeah. In the film industry, it's always DDP. Yeah, because I mean, there's despots all over the world that are that are their names are abbreviated, isn't there? Isn't yeah, that right? right. Like, yeah, I'm not, yeah. I don't consider myself one of them. But <laughs> is that in your? Have you probably um, photographed a few in your time, have you? I've yeah, I've actually spent some time with some, you know, the odd militia leader or oh, rebel right. or special yep. forces or. And, and that narcissistic uh, killer can be quite good company at mm, times. Of odd. Mm. <laughs> and that's just in Margaret River. <laughs> I think I came to Margaret River, so I didn't have to put up with that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, that's right. How, actually, how long have you been in, in Margaret River now? Seven years now, believe it or not. Oh, okay. Yeah, and, we and where were you before that? Uh, well, pretty much Perth. I'm sort of working out of – I've been in WA for over three decades. I'm a Victorian originally. Mm, um, yeah. I'm not sure how long it takes before you're officially a West Australian, but I've spent more time here than Victoria. Yeah, but yeah, I think okay, I'm probably yeah. still considered to be Victorian, but I, I remember somebody saying once on a radio interview that there are those, what do we say? Is there, um, there are West Australians and those that want to be West Australians. Mm. So I thought it was a decent place to come to. Mm. Yeah, yeah. That's true. It's quite yeah, true. Well, yeah, well, Carmen and I are pretty much West Australians, yeah, I think. that's right, yeah. Even though <laughs> Carmen's not really a West Australian name. Where, what is that? What's the origination? Uh, yeah, well, the origination. Is that, is that actually a word you want to use to scrabble <laughs> yeah. anytime soon, yes. Flesh? Or? It is now. Put it put it in the dictionary, straight to Wikipedia. No, it's a, it's a Welsh name. And I'm not Welsh, so... Uh, yeah. Okay. No, nothing wrong with Welsh people. Or yeah, like you that, do? But, no, well, no you're you're good, right. good singing voices, mate. You've got a voice for radio, so... Yeah, that's right. And a face for it, too, before Fletch gets in. <laughs> Go on, say it, Fletch. Oh, and a <laughs> face for radio. <laughs> no, no, you, you look good on film as well, Carmen. Don't you worry about oh, that. Oh, stop it! Stop. Yeah, hey, um, David. I mean, I, I, we've we've met you know met a few times and we've we've had uh, lunch together and and, yeah. and heard some great stories about you. But um, I'm I'm not sure if I ever ever gleaned from you. Where did you actually start in photography? Mm. Where, uh, where did that all start? Look, I was a working musician from I left school at 15, so quite a young age to hit the workforce. Mm. Um, so I taught guitar and gigged and uh, for the first 10 years of my life, so 25, um, 
I'd kind of had enough, I guess. And I, photography had always been a bit of a hobby. And I'd always had an interest in photojournalism. So I guess I sold the guitars and jumped on a plane and started trying to emulate my heroes, you know, the Don McCullens and uh, W. Gene Smith. And, mm. you know, I always thought it was the most important um, type of photography to take on. So it seemed like a no-brainer for me, even though it was a very difficult career choice. I, it's mm. given me an interesting life. Got yeah. a hell of a lot of money at the end of it, but you know, yeah, <laughs> yeah, lots of you're rich with experiences. Um, yeah, exactly. So you basically um, did you have a, a love for photography, or was it just like I really like what those guys are doing? It's like the whole lifestyle, the whole um, genre. Mm-hmm. Um, because I mean, you, did you think, oh, I'd like to take pretty photos of the beach? Was that would that have, did that ever enter your mind when you? No, look, talking about the beach, I was probably the only kid lying on the beach reading ski magazines. I always wanted to be somewhere else. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I think it's more that that need to travel and see the world, and I loved history, and you know, um, I just wanted to be part of it, really, in some way. Mm-hmm. So, how old were you then? Uh, when I took up photography, probably about eighteen, nineteen. I think I bought my first camera. I can't actually remember, but I remember a friend of mine. We, he had a lust for cameras, and we went up to town together and walked into a shop and I remember seeing those shiny actually I think it was a chrome mm. FM2 and or FM back then in a, in a case and mm. he was looking at Minolta's and then I, I asked her about the Nikon the sales assistant she said oh they're not for you they're for professionals uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> so nice. I walked back a week later and bought one and you know pretty mm. much it became a bit of a passion so, so that was I read your... every book and magazine I get my hands on about it. and for photojournalism in particular you know so that was your your first foray into photography because eighteen is uh, is is relatively old. I mean, Peter Lick, you know, had a camera in his hands when he was six months old. Um, <laughs> what I mean, what was that um, that thing that actually you know sort of um, really got you interested in the genre? Look, I think it was more that I felt a bit trapped as a musician because I, I wasn't working in a band. I was a pickup musician, so I was working for all sorts of things. So mm. you know, I'd be doing parents without partner gigs, Poultry Growers Association, all these odd things. I remember one gig I had to replace it. A guy who was off ill, and I had to wear this safari suit. It was about three or four sizes too big. I'm wearing one now. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'll oh, oh, be back. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> and I just kind of realized it was just, you know, I love music, but I, I kind of ended up disliking it in a way. Um, um, in fact, I hadn't touched a guitar properly for nearly 30 years until I came back to Margaret River. Yeah, right. Um, yeah. But the photography gave me a freedom that I thought being a musician wasn't going to um, give me. Mm. So I just jumped on a plane and travelled and did some really bad travel pictures and then, you know, always wanted to do something. I guess conflict, it just seemed like an important genre. So I was trying to head in that direction, emulate my heroes and my Cullens and the Cappers. Yeah. And and so so you went, can you remember your first your first real serious, um, well, I don't know whether you call it a job or whether you just take the photo. So how does it work? Do you... Do you get sent to places or do you just decide to go to places and then try and sell the photos look a bit of both um early days i certainly self-financed everything um and the stuff i was selling was more travel pictures so i was travel pictures along the way but then i started working in the middle east you know the west bank and gaza and getting a bit of interest from picture editors and Mm. um you know the odd agency i was sort of looking at being an agency photographer like you know something that akin to the Magnum photo agency, I guess, but, mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't think I was ever good enough for that. So, but there were, you know, I was still loosely involved with a couple of photo agencies, um, but it wasn't really my thing. I was kind of better off by myself, really. I think it's, I kind of realized early on, you're better having a, better off having a direct relationship with picture editors and having a go-between. Yeah. And I didn't want people telling me what my patch was or, 
mm. what I should be doing and what I couldn't do. I, I kind of love that freedom of being a sole operator. What, what does that mean, a, a go-between? Well, when you've got an agent, you know, pretty much everything has to go through them. Um, and it's like anything. It's just human nature. They'll play favorites or there might be somebody better within the agency suited. And mm. I just found that a bit too restricting. Um, yeah. So I'd rather take the risks of doing it myself. I, you know, I end up having reasonable relationships with some pretty decent picture editors for some de- decent publications. I was getting work despite the mm. fact that I, I had that shyness thing, whereas I you know, often had a hard time talking to people about, you know, I was never one to put myself forward, if that makes sense. Yeah. But I love the lifestyle of jumping on a plane and just getting into the thick of something. Yeah. But, you know, to, to finance that, you've got to kind of find a way of selling the work, and that was always a relatively yeah. complicated. But I yeah. was within the agency system for quite a while. It just didn't really suit me ultimately. Yeah, yeah, no, I understand that. So, so okay, you, here we go. You, you get on a plane, you end up in the West Bank. Yeah. How do you do? You have like someone on the ground that as a contact, or do you just start walking around the place taking photos and hope to hell you don't get, you know, kittled? <laughs> Walk down the wrong street at the wrong time. Yeah. Um, you, you must have some sort of back, some knowledge, or someone on the ground to help you. Look, my dad was a parachutist in the army when I was a kid. He, he left me with this. Um, that's the other thing I have was this little banner that says "Knowledge dispels fear." It's like a parachute. Um, parachutist. Um, yeah, little banner, which I've still got. Um, So I always carry that with me. Knowledge dispels fear. The more you know about something, the less risks there are. Um, And that meant local knowledge as well. So it meant either befriending someone that's interested in helping you out or working with a fixture if you've got the finances. Yep. But, yeah, the more you know about the place, the safer it is in a way. But there's still risks involved. You don't want to put anybody else at risk. So half the time you get some advice and you'd wander in by yourself anyway. David, people talk about this risk in war zones what does that actually mean? Is it like a you know is it like a scene out of Save it, Saving Private Ryan, or is it you know just just explain that um, you know that that feeling for us? What it's actually like in a situation like that? Look, most of the things I've covered that were difficult situations were pretty scrappy. Um, certainly not like Saving Private Ryan. Yes. I mean, I heard one renowned mm. photographer describe when that came out saying how realistic it was, and I mm. think he'd covered Kosovo. Or, mm. um, but for me, it's just, you know you'd have to be. You've got to get there. You can't get photographs from the hotel room. So if something's happened, you do need to be there. And mm-hmm. you're not there with a weapon. You're there with a camera. So, mm. um, yeah. But does it feel really unsafe? Like what, I mean, I guess what I'm saying, can you talk us through the fear? Is it, um, you know, are you worried that you're going to cop a stray bullet in the head? Yeah, look, I think, I can't remember who it was. It might have, uh, it might have been Eddie Adams, in fact, who said it's not the bullet with your name on it that you've got to worry about. It's the one marked to whom it may concern. Mm. Um, and there's that old Kappa saying, if you're not good enough, if it's not good enough, you're not close enough. But I, but my favourite saying is, no pictures worth dying for. So I've mm. always been pretty calculating and cautious. And, mm. and you know, if I find someone saying they're fearless, I, I a colleague that tells me he's fearless, I'm not going to hang out with. Um, yeah. I think real courage is actually controlling your fear and still being able to work, or mm. trusting your instincts. You know, you have good days and bad days, and some days you're better off not leaving the hotel room. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and and so. When you were doing those jobs, did you find that um, people were, they sort of ignore that you were there or they kind of like, you know, what are you taking a photo for? Was yeah. there any angst in that respect? Look, occasionally. I mean, most, I don't work with long lenses. Um, in fact, the only time you use a long lens is on a film set when you want to flatter the actors. So most of the time <laughs> in the in the field, it's, you know, between 28 and 50. So yeah. you're close enough that if someone doesn't want you to take the photograph, you can kind of sense that. Unless mm. they're doing something bad, I tend to step back and not take that picture. Mm. Yeah. 
but I think, you know, preventing you from taking a picture is a form of propaganda or a form of censorship anyway. So you're there to photograph everything you see and I very rarely censor in camera. Um, Even though I photograph some things, you know, you'd never publish, they're unpublishable really because they're quite graphic, but I think they still become some sort of historical record. Mm. I think it's more dangerous these days than it was then, Um, Mm. say 10 or 15 years ago even. Um, it's a lot more complicated now. People are aware of their own image and now there are movements pushing you to get permission from everyone you photograph on the streets and I think that can be a dangerous thing. I don't think people realise that that's kind of an erosion of a freedom, a fundamental freedom that we already have. Mm, yeah. If people sense that they will deny you that in some places that can become quite physical in them trying to prevent you from taking a photograph. So I think it's actually more complicated now, especially with the movements you see in America on the streets in places like Portland and um, becoming ever more difficult. Um, to work on the street the way we used to be able to do. What um what what are the what are the rules in, in regard to that, Fletch? Do you do you know? Like, can you just photograph somebody in the street if you're into street photography? I mean, obviously the laws you know in the United <laughs> you States. Me, are... I photograph trees <laughs> on the tops of hills. <laughs> well, David, how do the how do the rules work in terms of that? I mean, we're landscape photographers, so yeah, you know, a tree Look, a tree's not really going to make an objection. We have the right to photograph anybody in a public place. Mm. Um, uh, on the other hand, I think, you know, I do believe in responsible journalism. So, mm. you know, if you're covering a demonstration, you see somebody doing something that you think can get them into trouble, I think you kind of, you have to make those decisions on the spot. If something's so newsworthy, you'll photograph it, but you don't want to get anyone yeah. in serious trouble. So I think that's some, they're personal decisions. But fundamentally, on the streets, at the moment, we have the right to photograph anybody in a public place. Mm. Um, look, I remember somebody else, my son was having a his first ocean swimming lesson, and I remember the one of the instructors coming up telling me you're not allowed to photograph children in public places. And I remember having this discourse saying, well, that's not true. Mm, um, yeah. In fact, I was actually framing other kids out of it mm. yeah, yeah, because I'm aware of how you know tricky it is photographing kids. But, Sensitive, yeah. But I still had to explain myself and they still didn't believe it. They thought the law was you couldn't photograph kids in particular in public places and that's not true. Mm, um, mm, but you have to be responsible about things. You have to have an understanding of you know people's reservations and privacy issues and yeah. And my thing, I'm not a street photographer, I'm a photojournalist. You know, I, yep. I'm less comfortable wandering around the rocks or Bondi or, you know, Cottesloe taking pictures of people than I would be in a conflict zone. Mm. Mm. Yeah, well, that's, yeah, that's true because that is difficult. I mean, it's, if, if you're there and there's something going on, I mean, kind of some, in some respects, people expect that. And, and if you look at news reports, um, you always see photographers there running around with vests on and stuff yeah. and, and um, getting the shots and you kind of just, except that they're going to be there. So, mm-hmm. I think most people are aware that you're trying to reveal something of what they're going through as well. So sometimes yeah. it can be almost collaborative, you know. Um, but you do have to be aware of the issues and the complications. And, you know, I mean, I've, I've been attacked and had rocks thrown, spat at and shot at and tear gassed. And, <laughs> you know, Usually. I think back on it, it's so much dramatic talking about it in a few seconds. But then, you know, my whole life can be summed up in about two minutes worth of photographs. So, yeah. Yeah. I think a two fiftieth of a second. It's not a hell of a lot of frames. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes yeah. your only relationship with someone's two fiftieth of a second. So I think, you know, we're a little bit more aware of the fact that to tell a story properly now, you have to hang around a little bit. And I think the beauty of having an image in the back of your camera so you can actually have a discussion with the people you photograph. Yeah. You know, sometimes when I was shooting film, you know, I'd come back and I wouldn't see the images for five or six weeks minimum, you know. Yeah. And mm. so sometimes you didn't even know you got a shot till you got back, let alone, you know, 
a shot that would have been worthy of you hanging around and finding out a bit more about that person. So I think we work differently these days than we did, say, 20 years ago. David, you touched on it before and you said, you know, it's it's, uh, when you're in that situation, it's almost like a, you know, sometimes it can be a bit of a collaboration between you and uh, the people you're photographing. Do you, I mean, in all honesty, do do people play it up for the camera? Look, I think that's a good point. Um, And perhaps I should have said maybe understanding rather than collaboration, if Mm. that makes sense. Um, Because you don't want to have any more influence on an on an Im- or impact on a scene than you're already having by your presence being there with the camera. Mm. I mean, I've covered um, certainly riots and demos where if I think they're playing it a little bit harder for the camera, I will definitely walk away. Yeah. Yeah. Um, always. If I think that they're playing it a bit harder because I'm there, I'm not going to take those pictures. Yeah. Uh, look, I can't say I haven't. I've got pictures there where they do look a bit, you know, forced. Um, and that's the nature of demonstrations. They're there to push an agenda and, you're yep. there to recover it because it's the news. But I, mm. your role is not to, you know, to be the news, it's to record it. So yep. um, yeah. better to be safe and step away from something if you think you're having some sort of influence over the scene. Mm. Yeah. Well, so, you know, with, with what's been happening in America and this the rise of this uh, fake news, yeah. uh, do you think that's made it harder for photojournalists to, to be accepted? Like, because, I mean, you know, you, you talk about photojournalism as being... You know, truthful pictures, yeah. but they can be so skewed in so many ways by people with political agendas. Is that part of what's made it harder to, to mm. do this job properly? Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, we almost have to take out a campaign as to some sort of advertising campaign pushing, you know, um, bona fide journalists or, or journalism as a craft again. Mm. Yeah. Because the whole fake news and Trump pushes that agenda, you know, fake news, fake news, fake news, and everyone starts to believe it. And the amount of people I've got that should know better saying, you know, you can't trust the mass media, but they're never being specific. And I try to give an example as to where, you know, somebody like, you know, I mean, New York Times, Washington Post, The Atlantic, they've, they've got such incredible fact checking processes that yeah. I still use those as resources that are trusted. and yeah. Um, but people say, well, you know, if it's not aligning with their conspiracy theories and things, then it's mm. fake. Um, mm. And social networking. A lot of people are getting news on social networking. I mean, I use Facebook to, to share posts because mm. they've been shared with me by people that I trust. So yeah. it doesn't mean I always agree with what's in them, but I think fundamentally I believe them to be truthful and, and, uh, and have some sort of integrity attached to them. But I think the problem with social networking and, and a world where a blogger can, you know, can claim to be a journalist. I mean, you, anyone can say they're a journalist. It's not like going around saying you're a surgeon or a lawyer where you yeah. can be sued or, you know, lose your licence. I mean, anyone can claim to be a journalist these days, and I think that's a problem. Yeah, mm. yeah, it, it, it is great. And, and and isn't it funny, this has just all happened basically in the Trump era, mm. the last four years. I mean, before that, you, you know, I mean, you never heard of alternative facts and... Yeah. Um, fake news. It was, but, it was never there. He's I mean, the one. Of truth. He, he's the one that started using fake news. That was that's a yeah, Trumpism. Look, think I, think, I think we've had fake. issues for a while. I mean, the, the minute we had twenty four hour broadcasting and um, you know the pressures on getting the facts right. I mean, sometimes people make mistakes. Mm. And in fact, once you have all these redundancies and people, there was no sort of pay model that kept newspapers afloat. And then mm. the first thing they start doing is getting rid of their sub editors, and that's, that's like removing a safety. Yeah, for, for for journalists in particular, where you know you had a system in place where everything was double checked. Now you're seeing typos on the news, yeah, and a major publications are just getting it wrong, headlines mm. wrong, and mm. spelling. Um, yeah, mistake. yeah, isn't it? Because um, how long ago was it when they started um, 
getting rid of all the photographers. That was um, was that five years ago or yeah, five years. It's an ongoing process, I think. In fact, when somebody hires a photographer, it's almost like a celebration. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> the industry changed heaps. I mean, I've been in it for thirty years. You've probably been in longer than that. And 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 from you know from when I started to what it is today, it's hardly recognisable. I mean, obviously the work has gotten better, but maybe there is that whole distrust with photography and it, I mean it's been like that probably since digital started or maybe before because people were still doing some tricky things in in the dark room but um mm. yeah it's a it's a it's a strange craft these days and um you know when you when you see photographers that are pretty average but have massive social media followings you, you go okay um <laughs> That's okay. It's changed. Okay, uh, and and yeah. you can't begrudge that in some respects because you know that's just the new way of doing things. And us uh, guys that have been in the game forever, you kind of feel a little bit of ownership, I guess, to, with photography. But and then but when it does change, you got to try and uh, you know ad- adapt, to evolve, or adapt. I, look, it's, mm. it's tricky. I mean, I I don't do the social networking thing very well. I mean, I've got a you know, small Instagram following, and I. Occasionally I look at it, but it's just such an odd thing to do to swipe a picture away after seeing someone's picture of a cup of coffee and a half-eaten meal. I, yeah, yeah. You know, it's just not my world. I kind of – occasionally I see something that makes sense and it's kind of used well within Instagram, but it's just such a superficial platform. Yes. Um, and it'll probably disappear. So I've got friends that have 140,000 followers or something, and I'm not mm. sure how they monetize that. But yeah. But it's just such an odd thing. I've got another friend who gave me a 30-minute Instagram lesson um, – and he's got you know two working these cannons and a you know, wonderful photographer and it's such a full time thing doing all of that. He's shooting video stories mm-hmm. on one iPhone, shooting stills on the other, and then he's shooting cannons for his magazine, mm-hmm. um, and does it brilliantly. And I think he uses the platform really well. But he's also got that sort of a following. It's just not going to work for me. I don't have the energy or the need to do that. And I think at this stage I'm kind of taking a bit of a back step in some ways. I'd love to find some projects that I really care about that I can finance and not have to worry about that stuff. Yeah. But it was a kick to getting a Time magazine cover and a 10-page spread in Time, and that just doesn't happen anymore. What, what, yeah. what was that like? What was that, um, you know, when you that moment happened, what was that like for you? Which moment's that? The, the Time oh, moment. Oh, Time. I had a couple of st- cover stories. The first one. The um, first one was great. It was a story in the Solomon Islands. And actually, one of the favourites was a spread, even though when I look at the pictures, they don't really look like my pictures because um, one of the issues with assignments, and, I, and I'll say this up front, is that when I do find, self-finance something, I can spend five or six weeks and then even longer on a story and then get the pictures that I find resonate. Mm. But sometimes you're on an assignment. Most assignments, a good assignment be 10 days. An average assignment is probably three or four days. Yeah. And then to shoot enough pictures to get, say, a big spread. And I remember having a I think they were waiting. For, they had pages guaranteed for me to come back to, and they were pictures I'd shot within three or four days, and they just didn't look like my photographs. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense, mm-hmm. now you need time to really uh, flesh out a story. Uh, three or four days is nip, but the deadline dictates that you've got to provide pictures to fill those pages. Mm. And, you know, so it's it's kind of bittersweet if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah I kind of, so I think yeah, maybe the artist in me, and I don't consider myself an artist but um what the craftsman in me says you know the ego wants them to be something that resonates and traditionally i shot black and white most assignments are in color and Mm. it just didn't feel like my images so so it didn't necessarily feel like a validation of your work 
look, it's nice that they still ring, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's good. I mean, you've got to work, so you've got to work for people, and that's mm. and as long as you've got a reasonable. And I enjoy the relationships I have with the picture editors I work with. I mean, there's very little editorial work, but I still get the odd Guardian job, and you know, it's always a kick to get a call from Carly Earl or you know, people that know your work and appreciate what you've done and mm. your history and. And yeah, it's kind of a respectful relationship, you know. Um, yeah. Hey, mate, you're a, a Walkley Award-winning photographer, mm, and um, I, I probably should know this, but what are the Walkley Awards? I'm assuming it's for photojournalism? Uh, Walkley, they're journalism awards. Uh, yeah, journalism? Yeah, it's journalism. It's, it's the Australian equivalent of the Pulitzers, I guess, is probably the closest way to... Yeah. Um, yeah and when did you win one of those? God, I think it was before I was born. I'm not sure. It was a long time ago. <laughs> Do you want people to leave? I'm, I'm not big at entering awards, to be honest, but it's been a while. Um, yeah. I, I, it was on a – I don't exactly remember when, but it was a story I did on Romanian gypsies a long time ago. I've yep. been a finalist a few times since, but um, not in recent years. I, mm. I've just – I was on the board for three years, and that was interesting. I came out of that a little bit smarter, I think, because of the people you're hanging out with. But it's right across the board. It's not just photography. It's – you know, um, I think I was sitting on the judging panel for all sorts of things. Yeah, yeah. So you've, I mean, you've, you've been all over the world. Mm. You've, have you counted how many different countries you've actually worked in or been in and visited? Not, not as many as you think. I mean, I, mm. you know, not really. I've spent a lot more time in Asia than most places. I've spent a bit of time in the Middle East, so I, I've never counted, but not that many. Um, usually specific. I'd like to have seen more of the world, but it's just I always had to have a good reason. So I tended to go back and revisit places. So I spent a, a good decade going back and forth with Indonesia because, you know, you, you're talking about what a country of back then even was 220 million people and yeah. archipelago, God knows how many islands. So mm. And stories within stories have really gone to form that larger body of work. So I was more attracted to things like that um, mm. than seeing every country around. I, I'm not going to dive thinking I've missed out on anything, even though I probably have, but, you know, yeah, I kind of would rather focus on things that add to that body of work and places like Indonesia or that or the Middle East or um, I've never been to Latin America or Central America. And, David, if we can go back to Boxing Day 2004. The tsunami, yeah. You were in Bandarache. Yeah. Talk us through that. Well, I'd covered, um, well, I tried to cover the conflict there. It's a very difficult place to work because they had, you know, remember, GAM, there was a, a movement, a freedom movement, independence movement there. So mm. it's a very difficult place to work. Um, and I remember when the Boxing Day tsunami struck, I mean, I pretty much made plans to head there as quickly as I could. And I was also aware of the fact that, you know, I, I, there were restrictions placed on the way I could move around Indonesia at the time. So I had to... I didn't want to go in there without permission because I knew I'd have to go through roadblocks. And mm. I remember getting a call from Steve Dupont saying, "You know, what are you up to? You're going to go and cover it." So we decided to go in together. We ended up going to Medan and hiring a car and then driving in. Mm. But it was difficult because you know I'd, there were people there that I knew well, um, people I'd shared meals with, and you know their neighbourhoods had disappeared. Um, there was a market area that was just a matchstick dam full of, you know, stench and grey matter and wow. Um, so that was difficult, and I, and I, the sort of thing I covered before, like even conflict, you kind of, you, you can kind of justify taking pictures of that because of the nature of the work that you know, you'd have, even though you're supposed to be bipartisan, you'd always feel that it was good guys and bad guys, and there was a point to covering it. But the, the in fact, uh, covering the tsunami, I almost gave up. I could have given up photography after that. I just felt obscene mm. turning some of that stuff into compositions. 
Mm. And I'd seen death before, but not on that scale. You know, hundreds of pit bodies being delivered to mass graves in the back of trucks. And mm. you're trying not to step in that stuff, you know. And I remember the smell. I mean, it's so bad these days, but I remember for a long time there just a, something would trigger a memory. A smell would trigger a memory of that. And mm. I remember almost every article of clothing and boot, I just it came out looking like a refugee from the 80s because I got rid of everything I owned when I hit Chicali. I just couldn't stand the stench of it. Mm. But that it was tough. Um, and you know, some of the bodies have been in the in the water for a long time or on the side of the road. And the only thing that humanised them was like I remember seeing like a little bracelet on a woman, or their clothes had been shredded off them. It was just such a <laughs> dramatic scene and, mm. and painful to look at because you knew they were people just like you and mm. all that stuff about animals going to the hills with dead cats, dogs, rats, all sorts of stuff. So it was a Sorry, this sounds quite. You almost need a, a rating for this after talking about that stuff. But it's mm. it, that was a difficult. Was there was there any warning about it coming? Yeah, none. Uh, no, I talked to people there, and I'd say, "How high was it?" And they'd be pointing to the trees. You know, um, no, the quake struck, and then it hit them. In fact, we were there in the middle of then another large tremor hit, and just to hear the noise of the glass, you know, what was left of the buildings, the glass falling to the ground and the fear on their faces, you just realised then, looking at those faces, what they'd been through. They had no idea. None. And we almost thought it was going to happen again because the fear on their face said, this is going to happen again, you know, but mm. um, it didn't, thankfully. But, but you know, mosques I'd photographed before that was underwater and people were sitting there just picking up the remains from... Um, sitting on concrete slabs where the houses were and their families were within the houses because you know, some of the people would go to work in Medan and came back and the tsunami had struck and their lives had gone. It's, it's really difficult when you... Uh, I, mean, I imagine that it had to be really difficult when you're photographing something like that because I, I go out and I photograph beautiful scenes, pristine places in beautiful light. I, you know, I'll mm. sit on the top of a hill and look at this amazing sunrise or sunset and... Uh, you know, everything's, it's all wonderful, you know, it's almost meditation. Mm. And and you hear a story like that and what you, what you experienced. And, um, you know, I think it takes a, a special person that can, that can front up to that sort of thing. Mm. Have you, have you always been, um, you obviously, you know, have a lot of compassion, but have, have you always um, wondered how you can do things like that? Mm. Uh, look, it's hard to measure whether I paid a price or not. I mean, I get asked that a bit, but I'm not sure. You know, I don't think I suffer from PTSD, but I think I'm edgy. Mm. Um, mm. No, I think I've had to deal with stress. I think my body's telling me that, um, mm. or the doctors are telling me that. You know, yeah. So I, I'm not sure, Christian. I mean, I, you know, I've never considered myself to. Be, in fact, I think Time Magazine once did a, an article on Australian photojournalists. They described my work as a critically artless. I kind of identified with that. I had no issue, and they thought oh, that's an insult. Well, it's not really. You know. Um, I think there was something I saw once. It was an article about George Rogers, one mm. of the um, original Magnum co-founders, who was saying, you know, he covered. I think it was, I can't remember. It was, was it, it was Belson or one of the one of the um, camps after the Second World War. He's one of the first in there and seeing the inmates and the bodies. And he said something felt obscene about him turning that into composition, which is kind of what I mm. described earlier when I was photographing the tsunami. And maybe it was his words that were resonating in my head when I was doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not a fair weather shooter. You know, I'm not a landscape photographer. I don't get the horizons right. I, <laughs> I, I can't hang. I get a bit bored. I pace. So for me to stand around and wait for the perfect light, there's nothing meditative about me at all. <laughs> but you know, um, like that um, that sit- situation. Um, do you feel that you have a responsibility to take pictures? 
or do you sometimes want to go look I'm I'm just going to leave, leave this I just want to let history sort this out look a bit of both depends on the day I think it's like I've mentioned earlier get, have good days and bad days and uh, yeah I don't think I've got any ego really I think that's the only thing saving grace I have got that makes me feel like I'm not just in it for the profession or the accolades or the bullshit associated yeah. with all of that stuff I think the first responsibility is for the story mm. I enjoy companies. I'm happy to go out with other photographers and hang out because I enjoy their companies. I don't mind getting the same pictures as other people. or I just don't care. It's about the story first up. And if you can add something to it, mm. you feel like you've, it's a life well led, if that makes sense. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and I don't lose sleep. I, I think I think about things and I think through things. So I don't, you know, when I was younger, I'd kill dinner party conversations. I think I'm better than that now. <laughs> Did you? <laughs> well, you can be a bit self-righteous, you know, to start when you're trying to push through and you, your ego plays a bit of a part in what makes you do what you do. I, you know, I'm not someone that's going to stay in pajamas all day. That's not my thing. I get up and the first thing I do is make the bed. Sitting around someone carving up the roast and going, oh, it's a little bit bloody. And then you go, oh, that's not really bloody. You should have seen <laughs> I know. Yeah, no, I'm better than that now. I think. Yeah. That's not a knife. You'd better balanced. <laughs> That's not a knife. Yeah, hey, um, you were the official war photographer for the Australian War Memorial. That sounds lofty, doesn't it? In the Middle East. That's, yeah, it is very lofty. Um, how did that come about? I'm not sure. They just contacted me. Um, mm-hmm. It wasn't something I'd submitted anything for. I think they just, I think they looked at a few photographers and. <clears throat> And just somehow I, <clears throat> sorry, they threw a seven and it was me. Um, and look, nobody at the time was lining up to send me over there. So it, was, it seemed like a good opportunity. Um, for the most part, it felt like I was on an ADF annual report because their big thing was force protection. There's no way they were going to let somebody like me die over there. Mm-hmm. So, and they weren't, you know, they, it was, you know, it was a complicated thing to get involved with, but I, I enjoyed it. It was um it was an adventure, you know, you're doing ship to ship transfers. First, I was on a, you know, American PT boat, yeah. on the RAF, covering the Navy, covering the Army, you know, you know, Seahawk and, you know, the ship's captains asking me where he wants to put the connect and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, it was a lot of fun, but I, I didn't really feel like I was covering the conflict, to be honest. I mean, it was a bit frustrating yeah. on the other hand, but still, like I said, nobody else was lining up to send me. So, yeah. it was an extraordinary experience. And the troops, I, you know, the men and women I hung out with were, just so well balanced. The Aussies were doing such a great job at that stage, even though it was a complicated war and I didn't exactly believe in it. Mm, yeah. um, you know, I went over there not believing for a second of weapons of mass destruction. Um, yeah. But I had to go through the training, I even had anthrax injections before I went. Oh, really? Mm. Yeah, I'm not sure how legal that was, but you know, the, the quiet word was, you don't have it, you don't go. Yeah, okay. <clears throat> David, have, have you ever turned down a job? Have you ever gone, that's just, that's too hard, that's too risky? No. Yeah. No, I don't think I would. Um, oh, it depends. I mean, you know, flying to the sun without a space set, I'd turn that down, but I'd pretty much everything else. <laughs> would you be, would you get on the, um, you know, the first, uh, what's uh, Richard Branson's thing? Um, what's that, that he, spaceship he's, he's offering? Oh, the Virgin Phallic Symbol. Virgin, Virgin Galactic. Would you be first reporter on that, on that flight? Yeah, no, I'd jump to that. If they said, would you go? Sure, absolutely. Yeah. See, I'm, I'm a bit of a chicken then because I don't think I'd go. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, you only live once, you know, and that might be the end of it, but you're not going to worry about it. If your time's up, your time's up. And I guess it's quick, 
you know, if it. Uh... Well, you hope so, wouldn't you? I don't know. <laughs> is that, is that your um? Out of you because you're floating around, and I don't know how that works, but I've seen the movies; it always ends badly. Eyes <laughs> popping out of the head and things. So. Is this maybe how the David Dare Parker mind works? Like, if it's you know, if your numbers up, your numbers up. Is that part uh, of your no, philosophy? Look, I think I'm a bit smarter. Than that. that was a bit of a piss take, really. But um, mm. you know, there have been times I thought my numbers up, and I've done whatever I had to survive and get out of it. I don't think there's anything heroic about it. What's your most scariest situation? Um, not really sure. I think adrenaline kicks, and I have very few memories of them. But I have been—I um, said he's under fire a few times. Well, three or four times, I guess that's enough. But mm. um, had a loaded gun thrown through the back of a window to some colleagues and caught outside. And I think that was a bit nerve-wracking. But um, at least one of the colleagues was telling me the look on my face. But to be honest, <laughs> I have no memory of it. I just—I remember being pissed off because I didn't think we should be there mm. um, at the time. Mm. So I didn't want to die for no reason. Um, no. But I remember the guy couldn't get his second shot off. So he, we threw ourselves in the back of the car and the back window just exploded. Actually thrown his loaded gun through the back window of the car. Yeah. So I had that as a souvenir for a while, but ended up giving it to a UN guy before we left his team more. Mm. Yeah. Had a yeah. guy chase after me once and throw, I remember running through a glass door and actually threw a machete through the door just after I'd run through it. And I remember going to a kitchen looking for a weapon. All I could find was an egg spatula, you know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I remember laughing, thinking that's kind of obscene. Like, <laughs> so you're about to get shot and you're asking the guy, so do you want those eggs sunny side up, mate? I think by then he had a sort of homemade shotgun, so he'd already emptied that yeah. um, outside. But all he had left was a machete. But I think it was more intimidation, really, rather than any sort of, it's hard yeah. to say. You know, you can get hurt accidentally, and I think that's the stuff you've got to be aware of too. Um, and most of that stuff's so scrappy. I found things where people were so angry, angry and aggressive, and then the mm. next day they're almost apologising. You know. Yeah, yeah. Hey, um, you've you've got so many aspects to your work, and and you um and different things. You're part of different groups. Um, reportage is that how you say it? Is tell us about that. You mean the the festival? Oh, is it a festival? You oh, is that a festival? Is it? It was, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, tell us about that. What was that all about? Oh, look, it was a great time for us. I think we ran for about a decade. But there was a group of us. It was um, Stephen Dupont, myself, Jack Piconi, and Michael Amendola. We were just having coffee. At, I think it was in Bondi, and we started talking about. You know, it's hard for photojournalists to show their work because you know we don't make that much money, and as you know, exhibitions were expensive, especially mm. back then. Yeah. Mm. Uh, so we just had the idea of having maybe a projection where, you know, we'd ask photographers to submit or invite some photographers that we liked. And it was all about being inspired mm. and raising the profile of reportage or documentary photography or photojournalism in particular. Mm. So I think the first we had at Valhalla, then at the Academy Twin, and you know, I floated in out and um, we had uh, you know, a friend of ours, Jackie Vicario, who started managing for us because we were away so much. We needed someone that could actually look after it and, take home and because Stephen was always very active in it as well so he kept it going for quite a few years after we sort of drifted away it's still I think it's still um, a trademark thing I'm not sure if Stephen owns it all I know there are reportage workshops using the same logos and things so but fundamentally it's about raising the profile of photojournalism it's a wonderful thing you know we, we showcase some great work and have some great exhibitions and you know the odd scandal here and there and Mm. That's a lot of fun. I kind of miss that. Um, people to, yeah. to rejig that in some ways, but it's just time consuming and expensive. And, mm. you know, as we know, it's not a lot of funding around for such things anymore. So, mm. but it had a great at least 10 years. Um, and the, there's a, another group 
that you were part of. Um, is the 34 degrees south. Is that, is that still... Well, there's degrees south. Um, oh, degrees south? And 34 degrees south was something I added to it when Martin and I set up a little workshop thing here. Cause mm. That's my uh, uh, So it was a bit cheeky, but degrees south is a cooperative with Tim Page and again Stephen DuPont and Jack and Ben Bohane and... Um, and that's a lot of fun. You know, we have the odd exhibition. We haven't done much with it for a while, but we're rejigging the website. So, yeah. Look, I've been a bit slack. I had an email the other day saying send some pictures, and I keep forgetting. I think I've just yeah. um, would, getting a would you ever go out, out and photograph with um, like Steve Dupont and 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 some of the other boys, Jack and and um, work it, together? Yeah. Would you ever go to some hot spot and all like form the super group? You know, like the Avengers <laughs> of Photojournalism? Oh, we should do that. It'd be funny to have a little outfit or something. You know? <laughs> I look good in tight leathers. Probably not as good as I would have, say, 20 years ago, but um, I could see that happening. David, I if you have a mask, I could do with that. That would help things. Mate, if we could just uh, just get into a little bit of your personal life. They're not too too personal, please. <laughs> um, but you're, um, you're married to Martin Perrault, who's also a photojournalist. Um, Martin Perrault, yeah. Perrault. How does that, um, you know, what's it like being in that situation where your wife is presumably quite supportive of what you do yeah there's no competition I mean, we work in such different ways but we work well together as well you know i mean i met martine when she was she was actually a photographer of the united nations um mm. in fact i met her in his team i can't remember i think i was, had an assignment before then i went back to cover the elections and that's then i remember i think it was lindsay murdoch sort of the uh, City Morning Herald said, oh, look, the UN's having drinks mm. for journalists come along. Just so, you know, I wasn't there for the photos. I was there for the drinks. Yeah, fair enough, um, too. I saw this cute girl over there taking pictures and she, I could see her looking over towards us and then she came up and introduced herself and then had a go at me because, I mean, apparently she had emailed me a few years before I never replied. <laughs> <laughs> see, it does work. It's like it, red, it, you know, it, the ignore the chicks. So we, were, we instantly became friends. We were friends for a long time. Before I think we're photography, I had no idea. Like I liked it secretly, but never admitted it to myself. I think, yeah. and it was complicated. But you know, then we're on this tuk tuk in Cambodia once. She said, "I don't want to be old and not tell you I've got feelings for you." And I almost fell out of the bloody thing. You know? <laughs> I had no idea whatsoever, and I'd never do anything to ruin a friendship or complicate our lives. So it was a bit of a shock. Yeah. The one that worked. I mean, I, it was meant to be, and yeah. she does wonderful work. She's so driven. Yeah, actually, so driven. I feel like I'm standing still some days, you know. Yeah, and you know, the last time I saw, actually, I've seen her a few times uh, recently. But like, um, I remember one particular time when I saw Martine, and it was at Perth Airport, and I was just about to head off to Iceland. I think it might have been Iceland or Norway. I can't remember, but yeah, I have to go take some happy photos of beautiful <laughs> landscapes and stuff. And I said, "Where are you off to?" She goes, "Oh, I'm going." Now, I think she was going to. Um, cover something to do with the Ebola. A bit of Ebola, yeah. She went, went to West yeah. Africa, yeah. And I went, oh, no way. What the hell? What are you doing? <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> look, I worry about it, but I'd be a hypocrite if I said don't do it. I mean, it's, you know, she, and look, they're, they're so big on protection with the UN that I feel pretty safe that she's going to be okay, but it's still risky, all that yeah. stuff. No, But no, she, two stints to South Sudan, a couple of stints covering Ebola. I mean, no, she's gutsy, you know. Um, but look, I remember once we were in Vietnam and she just came to visit and, you know, I'm going through the jungle doing a store on Agent Orange in the back mm-hmm. of this motorbike in the middle of nowhere and there she's, her hair's flying in the back on a bike just behind me. So I kind of knew she was the right one. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah no, we're, we're good together. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. Oh, well, you're the 
the, the super couple. <laughs> There's a few of those in, in the photography world, but you guys are the, probably the only couple in photojournalism that um, that kick ass. So, Well, she looks good. She's a poster girl for you in this, and pretty remarkable. And she, you know, she's hot. I mean, There's a great poster that they had of, you know, it's a um, recruitment poster with her and a camera. Is she going to be listening to this podcast, David? <laughs> yeah, she, she likes that. She's French, mate. I mean, if I didn't say yeah. something like that, she'd be disappointed. We, <laughs> we. Oui, oui. Well, we're going to get her on next. We're going to, uh, we've are going we got a couple of others to get through and then we want to get her side of the story and, and hear, hear what she's done because she's she's incredible as well. So, I mean, both of you guys just uh, are quite remarkable. Okay. So, um, also, you know, just not taking away from that work you've done, you're also a stills photographer on movie sets. Yeah, so, and it's almost been parallel. Um, yeah. In fact, I've told the story before, but Rich, um, you know, one of my heroes was Robert Kappa. Certainly, you know, Kappa was this complicated character. Um, mm. But he'd had an affair with Ingrid Bergman, um, mm. the actor, and I think he kind of thought that working on a film set might be another way that they can help fund the agency Magnum, of, he yeah. was one of the original you know, founders of. Um, so I got the idea from that. And I, I yeah. kind of like the idea that you could work on a film set for three or four. One of the issues I have, even with editorial, like I'd be working for time, but I'd never get the bread and butter stuff. I'd never get hired in the portraits. It was always something complicated. So yeah. there weren't as many assignments as if you did the regular kind of editorial work. Um, yeah. So I could work on a film set for five or six weeks or a couple of months and then have enough money to finance the story. Mm, yeah. So it's kind of a good relationship. In fact, I couldn't have been a photojournalism without the work as a unit stills photographer on film sets. Yeah. And I think news photographers make good stills photographers anyway because, you know, you don't have the ego and you've got a tough hide and you can take the crap they throw at you and you yeah. can crawl between people's legs and get a photograph that still makes you look like you're the only person on the set. You must have some amazing stories from that. We we spoke to a um, a photographer who's relatively well known in Australia. His name is Eugene Tan. Takes a, yeah. a shot of Bondi every day. So Eugene, he's if you're listening, guy too, isn't he? He is, and yeah, um, yeah he's, he's a Perth guy. Went well, to I love his gallery. I visited when I was I, you know I used to work in, when I was working in Sydney. I'd stay in um, North Bondi, so mm. I'd often drop by and have a look. Well, apparently uh, Will Smith is a a big fan of his gallery too because uh, Will went there to buy some art. Did he get naked, Fletch? He wanted to get naked in there, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously, he wanted to get nude. But you must have, like, are there any stories like that from shooting on sets? No good ones, no. (laughs) Look, we sign NDAs, so kind of, you know, there's been some bad behaviour on sets from some actors, but most of them I've gotten along really well with, you know. I mean, I've been... One guy told him he's going to smash me, but he's notorious for that sort of stuff. Who, who so was I'm, that? I can't say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, uh, we'll have to sit down over a couple of beers and I'll, I'll dish it all. But um, Is he well known? Or? No, yeah. look, what I'm saying is so it, it, it can be tricky at times and I think mm. there's a lot of pressure on actors to perform and sometimes it goes to their head. And, but I've worked with some great actors as well that will give you the time of day. I mean, yeah. the guy, Matt Nabel, I've worked with a lot who's wonderful, you know, ex-rugby player, boxer, playwright, so multifaceted and... Yeah. Stephen Curry, one of the five, a great actor, you know, and he's he's in his late twenties or something. He played Graham Kennedy, and they're so oh, giving, yeah, right. you know. Yeah. They just know even when they've stopped the take, they give you a few extra beats. Mm. In the days when we made noise on set because we didn't have mirrorless cameras, yeah. nowadays you can shoot through takes because we've got these wonderful quiet, you know, the new Z series Nikon's a plug for them where I can shoot without a blimp is just a game changer. I wish I'd had mm. that twenty years ago. Did you did you go and have beers with any of these sort of people? Some of them, not always. I mean, to be honest, I kind of keep my distance in a way, you know. Um, 
Mm. I've always been shy anyway, but I, I, I just go there to do a job, you know, and I, my, my role is to not be seen on a set um, yeah. and yet still deliver the results. So I'm not, I don't stand back. I'll chat with a few people that I know and trust, but bottom line, I'm pretty quiet on set and I get the shots done and then they appear and people are often mystified that I've been there and that, that <laughs> I have proof of it, you know. Yeah, they're, they're filling out your pay slip again. But there's no way David would get that. I didn't see that. No, it happens. It does happen. Really? You know, I had a producer once say, well, where is he? Where is he? And I'd already shot it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so that happens. Um, yeah. But no, you've got to leave your ego at the door to work in the film industry. It's such, but it's such, it is a family too. I've watched a lot of these people grow up. So mm. on the last thing I did, um, well, one of the last things I did, I was Mystery Road 2, and I think I was the second oldest person on the set, which is... Oh, really? Yeah, and it took me by surprise. I didn't. I don't, you don't feel that stuff creeping up on you. you know? yeah. Did they call you Boomer? No. <laughs> you want I Boomer? Just get DDP, mate. No other nicknames before. <laughs> yeah. There's still a bit of respect for the old fellow, you know. Yeah, it must be fun though being on a, a film set. Um, mm. You know, having all the lighting and you got the actors doing all their thing and the yeah. prop sets. It must be pretty, pretty awesome. Look, it can be. Um, it's also hard work, you know, because mm. you know, if, if you do a 10-hour day, that's mm. a 14-hour day for you um, yeah. mm. because you're not just on set all day. You've got to go home and do posts. Mm. Yeah. So they're long days, and I don't think people realise that. And It's competitive, and a lot of people come and go, and, yeah. and it can be tough on the ego. You know, if you don't know why you're around a film set, uh, it's a minefield. Um, yeah. Is it glamorous? No. <laughs> well, look, it can be. I mean, I... I think, you know, I mentioned Mr. Roe before because the locations are extraordinary. I, I think there's a glamour to that. And the, and the cast were wonderful, you know. Mm. Um, and the producers were great. And, you know, everything it just ticked all the boxes, something like that. There's a lot of the film sets I'm on, you know, I might be only there for key days. And mm. that's hard because you don't really, you're not there long enough to have a proper relationship with the actors. So yeah. you come in, they're automatically su- suspicious of cameras because, mm. especially better known ones, they had this incredibly, incredible mistrust of, cameras and photo and paparazzi or quite, something. Quite so ironic, really, isn't it? They don't understand that you're on the same team working with the same people sometimes. So mm-hmm. that, that can be complicated. Or eye lines. You know, there could be massive cameras there with film crews around it, but you're the one that seems to get uh, distract them. So, Have you yeah. ever, ever worked with any anybody where you just sort of find yourself saying, gee, that bloke really drinks his own bathwater? You know, have you have you have you come across you know <laughs> that term? What does that actually mean? That well, you know, disgusting. have you come across somebody who who just thinks they're Jesus Christ? Yeah, of course I have. Yeah, I mm. have. Um, I think because, but I think they're playing that role. To be honest, I mm. I haven't worked with any really major names, but I've you know look some of the ones that I have that were great, um, like Jack Thompson. I've worked with years mm. ago, and he was an absolute gentleman and such a mm. professional. So mm. yeah. someone that probably should feel like that, didn't feel like that, you know. Mm. Um, somebody like Hugo Weaving, he's not just interesting, he's interested. Yeah, okay. He'll stand back and chat with the crew and he's interested in the filmmaking process and also interested in what people have done. Um, mm. I can, I just imagine him being like, uh, what's his, um, what's the guy, Agent Smith or whatever it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's, he's taller than that guy looks in Matrix. He's actually a pretty tall bloke, but he's just such oh. a decent man, you know, yeah. a decent human being. And I've had more of those in my life on the film set than not. Um, yeah. And I have had some difficult shoots, but to be honest, I just, you know, I'm not someone you can push around really, so I don't have yeah. to take crap from anybody. I think I people just let me get on with a job and then they get a better result. And I think the mm. ones that know me know that. So yeah, it's mutual trust and, Mutual respect and yeah, that's it. You know, and doing you just got to take the good with the bad, and there's more good than bad. Like 
Otherwise, I wouldn't have been able to do it for the three decades I've been doing it. Is it is it fun? It can be. It can be tiring. Um, yeah, on a good shoot, it's fun. Um, mm. I prefer the when I'm on more, so I have that relationship. I think that's important. So it can be frustrating when you're just brought in, or mm. you know, I've been on shoots where there've been three or four other stills photographers. And I think that's frustrating for all of us. Mm. Yeah, I got. Um, I've done one uh, stills shoot for my brother's short film that he made. What a wonderful film it was! A pain's fine. Have you seen it? Yeah. I have. It's great. Yeah. Anyway, um, so I got in trouble because they, I took off. I had my electric fat bike, and and we were out on this salt lake. So I just went <laughs> for a spin on the salt lake, not realizing that that they were filming in my direction. So okay. <laughs> I was out there doing burnouts, you know, doing you know figure eights all over this salt lake, and 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 here they were <laughs> filming this, and here's me in the background just zipping around. <laughs> so, Oh, dickhead, what are you doing? You, you stop riding your bike around the background, dickhead. You, know? <laughs> Dave, you, you, you could kill a Murray Fredericks shoot doing that, couldn't you? Because I love the way he shoots pristine length. In fact, he's such a master of that. You know, those pristine um, oh, landscapes amazing, that he does. Extraordinary. I was, I was watching with a, a fat bike. That'd be welcome, wouldn't it? I was watching uh, <laughs> a bit of YouTube the other night and Murray Fredericks just popped up. Oh, know, yeah. It was one of those Calabond ads. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you just I just want to get straight down to really Bunnings. Shocked that, didn't he? That was... Um, He's a wonderful cinematographer in his own right. Did he so shoot that, did he? I'm pretty sure. I will ask him. Sure I heard him mention that. Um, yeah. We all worked together. I think Murray came up and did some stuff. For that wonderful, you know, um, time-lapse stuff he does. Um, yeah. He did for Mystery Road and the titles and things. Yeah, actually. Okay. Through the series, in fact, they were beautiful. He's actually yeah. a good guy. He's actually up to a uh, top-secret project at the moment because we're going to talk to him in a couple of weeks. So we'll... Um, pass on my regards. I'd like to know him better. So he's a good fellow. He's yeah. a top bloke. Mate, just onto your uh, personal life, you're in Margaret River. Yeah. Um, so what do you do? Do you just get down to, there to Preveley Park and spend a bit of time in the green room daily or, you know, do you go surfing or, you know, what's what uh, do you do? I used to surf, funny enough, but I was never a great surfer. Like I said, I was the only guy lying on the beach reading ski magazines. Mm-hmm. I play a lot of guitar. Um, you know, sometimes I jam with some friends. I've got Matt Lewis, who's, you know, is this Energizer Bunny guy, really real character who likes mm. to get people together and do things so sometimes you're dragged onto something and I'll play a bit of guitar with some local musicians and things and that's fun mm. um, yeah. I think some ways I'm a better guitar player than photographer to be honest but yeah. uh, so but no I, I don't really spend as much time in the world as I should I, I tend to you know I want to be a good dad and a good husband so when I'm here we bought a drone recently I'm still learning how to use that oh cool yeah. in fact the first day flying that I had watched one YouTube video and then it's kind of scary putting that thing up there, knowing how much you just paid for it and watching it go out <laughs> to sea. Um, yeah. Martine's telling me off because she kind of she thought I was flying erratically, but her focus went to a bird that just flew past the drone. She concentrated on that, thinking that was me flying badly. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm pushing the home button, nothing was happening. That kind of uh, oh, the joys of drone. And and your son, he's he's creative as well. He's he's done a film recently, hasn't he? he- it ended badly for me. COVID project. In fact, he, we have bought a little Mavic Mini thing. I, yeah. In fact, I've, we invested in a slightly better drone after that, but that little Mavic Mini, he was the only person that's flown it so far, and he made mm-hmm. his shot his film. Literally, he held it in his hands for half an hour. I think that's the joys of PlayStation or something, even though I worry about the amount of time he spends on that but, um, yeah. or gaming, but yeah. you know, it's just something intuitive about the kids with this stuff. I think that might be a future for him. You know, but, um, yeah. Have you seen his little film? 
Can yeah, I... yeah, you yeah. sent me the link and, and we... Uh... Yeah, so Luke there, Parker, L-U-C. Yes, yeah, get on YouTube and like it, cause, but it does end badly for me. It's his, and he converted to black and white and he gave me all these orders. I put a bit of music on it for him. He's telling me exactly what it sounds he wanted. So he's the ultimate tyrannical director. Yeah, yeah. Damn. I literally I shot it on one flight. The first time he had it up, he had us do something. He'd move it in place, kept the drone up. He'd fly it around, did all the shots and then came back and I put up Final Cut Pro and he... I don't know what it is. Instinctively, he knew that this could do these things that he wanted it to do. Yeah. Um, as I'd sit there with a big question mark over my head, he was just, he had this in, intuition about how to make the whole thing work. Yeah. So he'd it's want a particular look of black and white, and then he wanted something different for a certain section. Then, yeah. you know, he'd cut things in. And yeah. Is that the video called Pathogen? to make with Ableton. So I kind of did, you know, I've got an Ableton thing here. So I started put, you know, creating some musical sounds for him, and he was using them as effects. And mm. Is that the film called uh, Pathogen? It is. <laughs> Watching it That's now. the only one he's done, but he did. A, I think he did okay in his marks. Oh, it's pretty scary stuff. It is. Good, good to see he's uh, he's following in his father's footsteps. You know, with the dark, difficult topics. You know. Oh, about. that's uh, that's you right there, isn't it? It is. Look, and I think I think it's hard for kids because even the other day, it worried me because you know, he said, "What's the point, Dad?" You know, I mean, he's just gone through climate change, thinking about that and mm. Greta, and then we had the wildfires. In Australia, he's seen them in California, and then now the the, the pathogen. You know, um, I worry about the mental health of kids because you know they. Mm. When I was a kid growing up, and I was his age, we all thought we had a future. We just assumed it was our right that there was going to be something ahead. Now these kids are thinking, well, mm. this is it. You know, and they're on their iPads and they're watching news reports, stuff that we didn't see. We had limited TV, mm. and you know we're watching maybe Wide World of Sports and. Yeah. But it must be it must be so hard for the kids. I was talking to um, I was having a chat with um, with Andre Juman yesterday, um, and you know he he's called me from LA, and and pretty much the, the first things out of you know first words out of his mouth were you know what the f is going on in the yeah. world. So you well, know especially in LA in America, you know what, what the f you know oh they just you know elections coming up and social well, unrest that doesn't and, work. It just doesn't you know. It's like you can't just go into something voting for the lesser of two evils. It's just not fair. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It doesn't but um, make sense. And you've got to have a compulsory vote. I mean, it's just yeah. they you know, they're so easily manipulated these days. Um, they definitely yeah. have to. But I mean, what must the kids be going through? It's like you you sort of touched on. It's like you know, you know, and 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 now a pathogen. So I'm looking at this going. Yeah, why can't? Why couldn't this actually happen? No, it is a classic bizarro world. I mean, I just think we've stepped through some portal into some other bloody dimension that's bizarre. It doesn't make mm. sense. Mm. I mean, the pathogen coming, or that, you know, the virus coming so quickly after climate change, mm. and climate change has almost gone off the table, it's still one of the most pressing issues that we need to deal with. Yeah, but no one cares about it. We yeah. need to deal with We can't leave it for our kids. I'm not going to do that to my son. I want my son to be on the floor playing with his hot wheel cars. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I think right. it's just we have to find a way of, recognising it and dealing with it. Now the pathogen's taken over, that that's on the back burner and it's still one of the major issues that we have to deal with is climate change. And it's right, and that's something that's going to affect everybody. It doesn't matter your health, your age, whatever. And these wildfires in America, you know, the effect that's having on the climate change. Yeah. Well, it's just it's it's exactly what's happened in Sydney, New South Wales, and, and... you know, this is. I think this is just going to be the new normal. Every summer, somewhere in the world, it's going to be burning. And, um, and there's nothing normal about this. That's the no, point. You know, we no, talk about nothing. the new normal, and it's not. There's no such thing. No, it's, it's absolutely. It's like we're trying to downplay everything by making it feel like it's normal. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. they're, they're softening the language too. They're using, you know, the language coming out is like, you know, um, 
you know, they're softening us up. So it's stuff like, you know, this is the new normal. And this is, and it's like, well, no, this has been going on for seven months. I mean, we, you know, we started to see this sort of thing in January. Um, and all of a sudden our world's turned upside down. And I know, look, Fletch, I know you're a, um, a bit of a Flight Radar uh, 24 follower. Yeah, and I'm not yep. sure if you were following it this morning, but um, mate, there is a lot of traffic, uh, a lot of aerial traffic leaving Perth Airport, heading up the coast. A lot oh, yeah. of Qantas planes with Perth to NA uh, registrations. Yeah. Um, so, What's that? well, that's you know they're they're all presumably going off to storage. Ah, really? Yeah. Um, so yeah, like in the space of six or seven months, our our world is pretty much falling mm. apart so it just it just goes to show how fragile it was to um to begin with and i guess you know the thing is too there's a lot of people listening to us at the moment in places like victoria and, and the united states where they're doing it really tough and mm. we're actually quite lucky because we're in western australia and it really is like an episode of the truman show like we're yeah. in just in our own little bubble um our, our our premier here his name is mark mcgowan he's um he was very proactive to begin with and got rid of you know basically got rid of the uh, the pathogen if you like um so we're you know we're we're okay kept here it at bay. I was, we're not going to get rid of it that's the problem you know yeah well that's that's the we thing we're in a bubble and we're mm. thinking about our neighbors like indonesia the amount of unknown cases that are there oh and that um, just makes you shudder doesn't it? i mean and india you know the, india the God. Are, my mm. colleagues and friends in india are going through and mm. america's been torn apart i mean everything's becoming more tribal and more dangerous and they yeah. Well, people have dream of a colorblind and gender-blind world where you know merit comes into something and we can all work together and, and everything's inclusive, but it's becoming less. No, it's not going to happen. And, and people people are saying too, anecdotally, that um, regardless of the outcome on November three, I think yeah. the election is. They're scared of the outcome either way. Yeah, that's the problem. Mm. You know? mm. Civil war. You know, they're yeah, talking well, civil war. They're terrified of that. I mean, you see, they're so heavily armed. I mean, that real right to bear arms really doesn't work, does it? No, it's going to backfire, excuse the pun, you know. But, it's just uh, madness. It is madness. So what's on the horizon for you, David? Have you got any any work coming up? What's happening? Because COVID world makes it a little bit difficult. Mm. Look, I've, I've actually been doing okay, to be honest. I mean, I think the government's stepping up with things like JobKeeper have helped, and I've had a bit of work coming in, and we're getting a bit more factual you know, I'm working on a thing called Aussie Gold Hunters at the moment, which is fun. You know, so I've been mm-hmm. spending a bit of time in the in the gold fields and what in Kalgoorlie? Um, or? No, it's actually been okay. It's a bit of editorial work. I've got a couple of Guardian jobs coming up, and I've had a bit of work for the New York Times and Bloomberg. And yeah, it hasn't been too bad. Um, and I've been investing money back into equipment and things, which you know, um, just to try and rejig things. So um, no, it's 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 been good. Um, Hmm. And have you got any workshops coming up, anything like that? Not really. There was one on offer, but I think I'm going to be too busy for it. Um, Martin and I, we did one in Leonora last year for hmm. um, it was Awesome Arts, I think. And that was that was wonderful, some of the kids around there. Yeah. And that was fun because these kids are natural storytellers. Putting cameras in their hands was a lot of fun. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so um, no, we enjoy that when we can. We certainly – we started doing workshops here, but it just didn't work because, you know, you got to take bookings too far in advance. And the problem with me is that, you know, I have to take the work on that comes to me when it comes, and I can't really think about. We even thought about doing weddings when we first came down, and we did one, but you know, mm. it's not us. I'm not going to die a wedding mm. photographer. Yeah, no, no, no. no, you should do you, with your your line of work, mate. You should do more divorces, you know, <laughs> used to conflict, so that would work really well. Hey, mate, look, um, 
it's been awesome talking to you. I it's think been a pleasure to talk to you guys too. It's been thanks, a thanks a lot, David. Great. That's awesome. Yeah, no, really appreciate pleasure. your time, and um, you know, it's great to hear your insight on on politics, the world, and mm. and photography in general. So, thank you for your time, mate. We'll um, My pleasure, mate. No, it's been fun, guys. Um, and look, I look forward to hearing Martine on your show. She'll yeah. Sure. That'd be good. Uh, thanks a lot, guys, and thanks for the questions. I really Pleasure. good questions, so it was a lot of fun. Yeah, good on, mate. Well, we will catch you very soon.